Welcome back everyone to a podcast all about the sounds of cinema and discussion about them between the notes, which is where we come in. I'm Tony Black. I'm Sean Wilson. And we're back after quite a long hiatus to bring you discussion of music from Hans Zimmer, James Newton Howard and David Julian as part of a discussion of the music of the films of Christopher Nolan in advance of his upcoming latest film, Tenet. I'm really chuffed that this is going to be the uh, the first of a new series of Between the Notes. It's great to be recording with you again, Sean. It's been way too long. It's been a long time and yeah, I think to to start it up again with uh, Christopher Nolan with a, an emphasis on Christopher Nolan with Tenet coming up is is really really exciting. Yeah, I mean it's it feels it feels particularly blockbuster enough, doesn't it, for the premiere of a new series. You know, you've got to come out all guns blazing, haven't you really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. So I mean, I I looked it up. I'd said off air a minute ago. I looked it up, and our last episode was talking about um, TV scores actually, and like great TV scores, and um, in t- uh, tying with Good Omens, which came out last year. And we had an interview with David Arnold on the on the show, which you did, and that's been a whole year ago. So I mean, there have been a couple of things happening in the world since then, Sean. I don't know if you've <laughs> noticed, but. Um, what have you been up to over the last twelve months? Um, you keep keeping keeping my head down, particularly in the last couple of months. <laughs> <laughs> um, trying to keep my head down now. It's um, it's obviously been incredibly topsy turvy for everyone. And in in my job, I'm a film journalist. I write for Cineworld, and I think the, the cinema industry has never gone through anything like this before. I I was thinking about this the other day. And not even World War Two proved this disruptive on uh, movies because even in World War Two, films were still being made and films were still being exhibited. Now what you have is a complete shuttering of both cinemas and movie sets, like nothing can happen. And it's really quite an extraordinary, and here's the word, unprecedented, which is the word that everyone's been using. It really is an unprecedented situation and I think I've just tried to in my job trying to keep my head above water recently with all of that and it's also you know fascinating seeing that we might be on the cusp of great changes in the movie industry who knows it's a very interesting time isn't it for for that i mean there's uh, i'd point anyone to the latest uh, magazine of uh, sight and sound actually because there's some interesting pieces in there from exhibitors talking about you know, particularly independent exhibitors as well, talking about how they're going to survive the COVID nineteen pandemic, which we're all living through, and how you know how uncertain it is, and how it's going to see a sort of a paradigm shift and a mindset shift in terms of how we digest film, and and you know by de- by uh, default film music, you know, and how all that all that happens, and I, I, it's just so hard to predict, isn't it, Sean? I mean, you know, you, like you say, you work in the industry. So you'll have you will have a little bit more insight into this than than a lot of us in some senses I think and you you know you're you know a lot about film and you know a lot about the business. I mean I suppose I'd ask you do you think that it you know do you think that local exhibitors and, and independent cinemas will survive or do you, do you think and and do you think this will change the way the big chains sort of distribute films and and how they do it and stuff like that. I think one of the really important things to note is the relationship between distributors and exhibitors because this has already caused a fair amount of upset with um, films going straight onto VOD or onto streaming. I think that what we are going to see is a lot more of that. 
and I think there is going to be a lot more there are going to have to be a lot more conversations in terms of how audience patterns change because very often both exhibitors and distributors are intractable they're kind of locked in in their positions and there is often there's this kind of fixed perception of what movies are and how people watch movies but that that that's i mean that was that's been blown out of the water over the last few years anyway not just in terms of the coronavirus pandemic but things have been changing and i think there just needs to be more of a dialogue in particularly in light of this situation in terms of like right you know how can we get people back into cinemas and i think it's interesting that all of the weight is being thrown behind tenet which is you know 200 million dollar christopher nolan blockbuster shot in IMAX and ultra widescreen 70 millimeter, you know, that is the kind of arresting popcorn spectacle that will wrench people out of their homes back into, uh, into cinemas. And I think that the increasing the strategy seems to be revolving around films like that, that will get people back into, into screens. But I think there's going to be a real uphill struggle just in terms of the, the health considerations in terms of how cinemas, operate on a technical level how they get people to queue how they get people to buy tickets we were talking earlier about how you know we think we're we're approaching a cashless society increasingly there's going to be lots and lots of that i mean i'm particularly interested in because cinemas rely so much on concession sales i'm really interested to know what the implications are for that in terms of like people handling food people handling drinks whether that's going to take a big knock yeah, I mean, honestly, the the problem is we're in the middle of the situation at the moment, aren't we? And it's very difficult to comment on the future of something when you're in the middle of it. You know, it's always when you come out, you come out the other side, and then you you gain the benefit of hindsight, don't you? Really, but I'm I'm optimistic. I mean, cinemas have the cinema industry has faced astonishing challenges before. You think of, for example, the rise of television which was a real, back in the 40s and the 50s, the idea of the television threatening the sanctity of uh, of the big screen. And then what you, you know, what you then got was an upsurge of massive, great, big you know, biblical epics that, that, that in, in, a, in a way were, were a response to that. You know, that, okay, so at that point, cinemas had to justify their existence. They had to justify the need for people to step away from the television and come back onto the big screen. I think we're going to see maybe more of that more films that actually showcase what it is about cinema that we that we love i think in in a situation this drastic i think films like tenet which do aim to overwhelm and engulf in a way that you can't get from a film watching at home i think that's going to have to be the new norm well obviously tenet is you know a key part of our overall discussion today and mentioning that's interesting because that's caused a little bit of controversy hasn't it in terms of the fact that it's still supposedly opening in july even though a lot of cinemas are still closed and there's a big uncertainty as to whether they're going to open and how they're going to open and what social distancing measures they're going to have to put in place and given the entire rest of the slate of the summer is gone and has pretty much it has moved certainly pre-july and has moved back a year i mean from a from your personal position i mean it is is reopening tenant now a good idea? Is it is it something that should have waited, or you know, I mean, I'm guessing Hans Zimmer's doing the music for Tenet. Is it is it one of those? I mean, it is well. Firstly, is Hans Zimmer doing the music for Tenet? Because I can't remember. And if so, 
is that enough of a reason for us to <laughs> really want this film now <laughs> as opposed to waiting, you know? Well, I mean, it, it isn't Hans Zimmer. It, it's Ludwig Göransson who wrote, who ran an Oscar ah, for Black Panther. So, cool, um, okay. Hans, yeah, which would be really interesting. Hans Zimmer stepped stepped aside to score Denis Villeneuve's June, which is another movie that's meant to be coming out this year, albeit in December. We'll wait and see on that. I mean, you know, we're here to talk about film music. So, I mean, I will often, me and you will often be drawn to watch a film on the big screen on the basis of who the composer is, particularly if it's a composer like Hans Zimmer or Ludwig Göransson who can throw out these really experimental textures in terms of in terms of the question about whether it's safe to open the movie i mean at the moment it's impossible to predict anything beyond 24 hours ahead isn't it it's 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 really a futile endeavor we don't know what's going to happen on a day-by-day basis let alone what's going to happen in six to eight weeks time there is the suggestion uh, i think quite a cynical suggestion and i don't I, i don't think it's particularly well founded that um Christopher Nolan has has cut a, a deal to get a, I think a, a percentage of the profits on on Tenet's opening. That's why there is you know some people, rather cynical people, are saying that's why he's quite keen for the movie to open. I believe that Christopher Nolan has got a lot more integrity and sincerity than that, and I think that what's happened is that he's recognised that people have been starved of an experience like this now, a big screen experience like this for the best part of three months and. Christopher Nolan is a director who respects the audience. He he gives an audience what they want in terms of popcorn thrills, but he also makes them think. And this is, is being positioned as a movie that's going to shake off all the cobwebs of lockdown, apparently. And I think in terms of how safe it is, it's impossible to call that at the moment. I think just this is such a, a, a fluid situation that, you know look looking i was looking this up the other day we haven't had a global pandemic i think since the spanish flu in 1918 when the cinema industry had literally just been born at that point <laughs> it's like the cinema industry has never had to deal with a situation like this before it, it, it's it's very very challenging I, I am curious to know if tenet does move what that's going to do for the rest of this year because as you quite rightly said and it's really been really quite astonishing we've gone three months near enough without any films coming out in cinemas that's never happened before it's really astonishing so i you know i want tenet to open in july whether that's the same as it being safe to open in july i can't call that at this stage it's impossible oh no of course you know and uh given you're not on the sage committee you know, in the it's quite unfair to sort of say, Sean, when is when should it be opening? Uh, although to be honest, I'm not sure everyone on the Sage Committee can make that decision either. But that's yeah, a whole yeah, I know, yeah, story. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I think um, I think there are there are some people on that who aren't supposed to be on it. So it's probably we we probably could on that mm, basis. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Say, so, yeah. yeah, we've just come up with that. But no, I think it, there there are two there are two sides to it. I mean, me personally. I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere near a cinema for a while, and so I, I'm. If Tenet does open, I will probably miss it on the, on the big screen, which will be the first Christopher Nolan film I've not seen on the big screen since before. Well, Batman Begins was, I think, the first one I saw. So we're talking 2005. So it will be 15 years, and that that will be a real shame. And it will be hopefully something I could catch, you know, down the line if it was playing again or whatever. But I. Me personally, I don't feel it's safe enough, really, and and I think I, what I hope is if it is opened, and that you know measures are put in place that it doesn't hurt the. I mean, if you put aside all the concerns about safety, which is a separate discussion, but 
it, I just hope it doesn't hurt Tenet's box office. I hope it hurt, doesn't hurt Tenet's success because even in a situation like this, films are still going to be judged in similar ways, you know, I think. And, I, and I'd hate for it to have a negative effect on the films that Christopher Nolan gets to make because he is one of our greatest filmmakers. And Tenet looks fantastic. It looks like an inception for our new new age in some senses. So, I, And I can't wait to see it. You know, I've been so excited to see this film for, for a few years now. So it's it swings and roundabouts really. I think I think it's it depends on your on your point of view. And I I wouldn't blame anyone for not going, but equally I wouldn't if people feel it's safe enough and they feel like you know they they want to they want to take part in like you said because it's a good point what you've made about the experience of tenants sort of blowing away the cobwebs and being something that makes you feel good about cinema again and makes you experience something. And if people want to do that, then great. And I hope I wish it all the best to be honest. And I think it will be down to personal sort of preference really there there is there is another point an important point actually which is that um in the trade press uh, in uh, articles like variety deadline hollywood reporter and so on people have made the point that in order for tenet to be a, a viable proposition in terms of its opening 80 percent of all cinemas need to be open around the world and given we are at, at the time that we record this we're about six weeks away from six seven weeks away from tenet's release you know are 80 percent of the world cinemas going to going to be open in in about seven weeks time i know that there are some cinemas in certain territories that have opened i believe was it south korea maybe a few other countries where cinemas have reopened that seems like a bit of a tall order to me to get that ready and and i'm according to the to the um to the press that's that's what that is what's going to be needed to make tenet work and there is a lot riding on it. Um, Christopher Nolan has never. I was looking. I was looking up the box office figures of his films. Christopher Nolan has never made a film that hasn't turned a profit. All of his films have turned profits to, to varying degrees, but they've all been successes. Even even I was looking back at um, uh, following. I was I was writing something for Following, which is his first feature film back in 1998. I wrote something on that for Cineworld. Even that made something like 240,000 on a $6,000 budget. So he's, 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 he is, he is extraordinary. And he's, he's carved out this niche of, he's, he's built up an astonishing level of trust with distributors, particularly with Warner brothers, because he's proven time and time again, without fail, that he can bring in the money, but he can also bring in the acclaim and, and the, and the awards prestige as well and the critical prestige. So it's, it's a big gamble for him. As, as as a filmmaker, huge gamble, um, big gamble for Warner Brothers. They've plied a lot of money into this. If it does turn out to be the saviour of, of the summer season, great. But obviously, you don't want that to come at the expense of people's health. So it's 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 like a tightrope made of razor wire at the moment. It's really, really <laughs> tough. That's a great description. <laughs> it is. It is. There's no easy answers. And I think, you know, we. that's why we thought we'll come together either way. You know, whether Tenet comes out or not you know this is a good opportunity you know nolan's in in the in the mind's eye right now his films are in the mind's eye so let's talk about the film music of them and let's celebrate that a little bit so we've chosen between us five tracks each and i think we've done a pretty good job actually in picking different films you know we're pretty much picking through most of his catalog here actually uh in terms of nolan's films because he hasn't made a vast amount of movies but um there, there is enough diversity within them i think in order to get some really good conversations out about it so there's, there'll be a bit of overlap here and there but i think on the whole we've got a cool list of, of tracks here and what we'll do is we'll put them in given that we're not licensed to play them on this podcast we'll put them in a spotify playlist for you to listen to 
uh, at a later date and you can go away or you could put them on. My suggestion is, because uh, they'll be in the show notes, this is an idea, Sean, for audiences, put it on while you listen to us. Have it on in the background. Have it on underneath. That's my suggestion. So yeah, look it up in the uh, in like the show notes and we'll and you you should be able to find that playlist. So Sean, why don't you kick us off then? Let's talk about Nolan's films, film music, and what's your first pick gonna be today? We're going through one track per per choice, and it will be from a particular film or album. So what have you gone for? Well let's start <coughs> with um my favourite piece of um music from a from a nolan film although somewhat ironically it's not my favorite nolan film but it's my favorite score from a nolan film again there's that kind of cognitive dissonance in terms of how much you value the music and how much you value the film um i'm talking about no time's no no time for caution uh by hans zimmer from interstellar which is i mean for my money interstellar is kind of the classic nolan film where it bites off more than it can chew it goes into these I think atypically cheesy areas about where love transcends time. And you've got Matthew McConaughey floating through a tesseract to some kind of interdimensional bookcase to communicate (laughs) with his grown up daughter played by Jessica Chastain. And I I remember watching it and I thinking, okay, where, where is the Christopher Nolan storytelling discipline and, you know, rigor that I, that I've come to expect. This is just, this is just ridiculous, but there are, obviously there are qualities to it. I mean, it looks and sounds staggering. And I think that Hans Zimmer's score is incredible. I I should point out that I, I know on, on this podcast, I've been quite critical about um, Zimmer's collaborations with Nolan, but I don't want to, I don't want to write them off completely. I do, I do think that there is a, there is often a problem in Nolan's films, which is that he doesn't, he very often, he doesn't like to showcase music that has subtlety or nuance. What he likes is music that acts as as an extension of the already overwhelming sound design. So what you often get is you get sound that, that washes over you and then music, which is similarly loud and seat shaking as well. And I think that very, (laughs) I've often had a problem, particularly in films like Interstellar and the Dark Knight Rises that, because Nolan's films are already quite dialogue-driven anyway, they're already quite reliant on, on on exposition. Very often, it's kind of like it's kind of a question you have to like move your ears for and go, "Hey, like, what what are you saying?" Because um, you've got this like barrage of, of sound and music, and I think that Nolan and Zimmer haven't always helped themselves in the past with that. But I will say, with Interstellar, I think the harmonic and instrumental choices are brilliant, particularly the use of the organ. Um, which is gives a, it does give that kind of spiritual transcendent feel, and it gives this kind of yearning, suspended feel. The idea that I mean, it, it, appropriately enough for a film in which you know Matthew McConaughey plays an astronaut who has to you know travel through a, a, a wormhole to try and find a new home for mankind. The organ has got this kind of like reaching, yearning quality, which is appropriate for um, a character who travels across space and time, and yet remains he remains bound and tortured by the, the memories of the daughter that he, that he left behind on oh, no, a Murph like that like that character <laughs> so, so, um, yeah Murph it's, it's Murph <laughs> just, but I think Zimmer's music somewhat paradoxically given I'm not a huge fan of, of the film I think the film overreaches itself I think somewhat ironically the music is the best music that Zimmer has ever come up with for a Nolan movie and it's gorgeous. It's really interesting. I mean, the movie is obviously intended as a 2001 homage in a lot of ways, and the music does play into that a lot. But the the the, the track "No Time for Caution," which um, 
spoiler alert incidentally for people who haven't seen it there's um towards probably about three quarters of the way through the film an astronaut played by matt damon's character turns up who who is meant to be you know he's meant to be an expert it turns out he's actually a traitor and a murderer and he tries to basically he's lured matthew mcconaughey and Anne hathaway's characters to this planet and then he aims to just get hold of their spaceship and try and get back to earth and then for some reason he forget he forgets how an airlock works even though he's he's meant to be an expert scientist and then gets killed and there, there then ensues you know that's really weird that scene and again talk talk about the, the weird lack of logic in a christopher nolan film again it's sort of storytelling conveniences really and then there then follows an astonishing sequence whereby um there's a docking sequence whereby they have to um Matt, uh, mcconaughey's character cooper has to match the um spin of the spaceship with which they're attempt to dock to dock and what you get is this cyclical build of the organ on this track no no time for caution by Hans Zimmer and and, it, and it's astonishing just i mean it's real hair on the back of your of, of your neck music and the use of the the organ which gives this kind of like divine again heavenly quality urgency it's kind of like a weird mixture of like heavenly sound and also real urgency and uh, in combination with the IMAX visuals which obviously given this is a Chris Nolan film are astonishing enough on their own terms it's, it's brilliant and I think it's a rare instance where this doesn't often happen in Chris Nolan films it's a rare instance where the music is 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 adding more to the scene the music is actually telling you more and I think as I said very often what Nolan likes he likes music that that is an extension of the sound design rather than rather than a storytelling device on its own terms yeah it's it's I think it's it's, it's fantastic well I'm I'm much more of a fan of Interstellar than you although I can't every, every logic point you've you've picked up on there or some of the storytelling wobbles <laughs> I can't disagree <laughs> with you know I, I I completely accept that with Christopher Nolan and it's something that that really bogs the hell out of a lot of people. You know, there's a lot of people who don't like his films. And a lot of the reasons are based on logic holes. But, you know, in our last episode of the last series we did of this show, I talked about how much I love Lost. And if I love Lost, then I can cope with a Christopher <laughs> Nolan film with some logic holes. So, like, I, <laughs> I'm fine with that. Because I, I get swept up in the the emotion and the power of, of his visuals and, and, and the stories he tells. And Interstellar is no exception. And I find... I loved that film when I watched it at the cinema. I've loved it on subsequent watches. And yeah, the score is, is wonderful. I mean, I, I am, as people know, if they listen to this show before, I do like Zimmer's music generally a little more than you. But I think he really does do exceptional work here, like for all the great reasons you've described, because he does, he does make this truly operatic in, in a way that he hasn't done in the same way with, with, with a lot of his other scores. And it feels like he has the, the, the scope here to do that with Interstellar. So I'm with you. I think it's a wonderful it's a wonderful track. Um although I have to take issue on one point of one thing you said there Sean. You described the actor as Matt Damon and we all know it's Matt Damon. Matt Damon. So, you know, scratching <laughs> you there. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I suppose the other, the other one of the other logical fallacies that I want to point out I don't want to make it sound like I'm completely ragging on Interstellar and I should point out I, I am I am a fan of Hans Zimmer but I like often what I like is Hans Zimmer in understated form I like Hans Zimmer in kind of Rain Man Beyond Rangoon 
regarding Henry kind of form, that's the kind of Hans Zimmer that I like. Although this this in Stella is kind of an overblown Hans Zimmer score that I actually think operatic is exactly the right word. In in terms of logical fallacies, also the the, the scene where they land on on the planet Miller with the with the big waves that they initially think are mountains, and then all of a sudden. Um, they turn around and discover that a thousand foot wave has managed to sneak up on them without without seeing it. I'm like, okay, I'm, it's, again, it's that kind of thing. I expect more discipline from a Christopher Nolan movie. I mean, it looks and sounds utterly magnificent, and uh, Zimmer's scoring that in that scene is stupendous as well. And I love the concept, but it's like really. It's like you didn't notice that sneaking up on you. <laughs> yeah, like... no, it's it's true. It's it, I, I get it on that perspective, but. Yeah, I do love Interstellar. But it's a, great, it's a great point to start. It's a great place to start, definitely. I'm going for a... I mean, I will talk a, a fair bit about Hans Zimmer's stuff because most of my choices are Zimmer. But the, I, want, I thought I'd start with one that isn't. And I'm going for the track A New Trick from The Prestige, which was scored by David uh, Julian. I think he's, that's how you say his name. And this is the film that was just after Batman Begins just before The Dark Knight. And I think around the point that Nolan was starting to be appreciated as one of the greats, you know, I think he obviously he'd done films before that were critically appraised, things like Memento, which I know you're going to mention later, I think, and, you know, Insomnia and, and, and stuff like that. And then Batman Begins comes along and that really strikes a chord. But I think pretty much it's, I think The Dark Knight is the film that really sends him into the stratosphere. But just before that, you had The Prestige, which was... And a lot of people, I think, think The Prestige is his best best movie. I'm one of those people. Can I just say sorry to yeah. interrupt? I am one of those. Yeah, yeah. And you're not on your own. There's a lot of people who feel that the the you know, 19th century set, very complicated, tricksy film about magic and sleight of hand. It's a film I haven't seen in so long, and it's one I need to go back and revisit because I did love it the first time around. You know, a lot of people think that is his best because they think it's it's one of those films, you know, we talk about logic holes. That seems to be a film that's really well constructed in terms of plot and structure in a way that maybe some of his other films aren't. So it's but it's also a film that doesn't have Zimmer's score. And this was just before he starts to really pair up with Zimmer as being his composer largely of choice. And he's still using Julian, who he'd used on Memento, he'd used on uh, Insomnia as well. And he didn't use him on Batman Begins, but this is the last, I think it's the last time they collaborate. And it's it's a lovely score. It's very, it's different from the scores that Zimmer provides. It's le- it's it's far more, it's, it's far more pastoral and flowing. And A New Trick is a very quiet, but also it, it's got a track, but it also has a lot of the thematic ideas that are underpinning the prestige in, in a lot of the way that Julianne scores the film and I think it's a very nice change of pace in some senses from what you get in a lot of Nolan films I mean do you remember do you remember much about the score for the prestige Sean or has it been a while since you've seen that I mean it's a film that I watch fairly often I mean I I do think it's Christopher Nolan's finest movie I think it's brilliant the way it replicates the the um both the structure and the emotional impact of the three-act trick structure the idea of the pledge the turn and the prestige uh, as relayed by Michael Caine's character Cutter at the beginning um I, I have to say I think the score the score is often so discreet as as to be anonymous at some point i have i I, as you said i have got um, another david julian julian cut on on this on this podcast that i'm going to be talking about a bit later but i think in the prestige it's 
it, it, yeah, like you say, it, it goes complete in completely the other direction from Zimmer. I mean, if Zimmer is often so bombastic as to actually drown out the dialogue, um, it, it's this one goes completely the other way. And I mean, certainly it's murky and it's mysterious and it's brooding. Those are the impressions I get, and it's more. It's this is more a score of tonalities, and I think that's what Nolan likes. I don't think Nolan, with the exception of Interstellar, Nolan doesn't favour music that is built around themes or recognisable ideas. I think he likes texture, he likes tonality, he likes volume, but I don't get the impression that he necessarily likes or doesn't. Fa- it's not that he doesn't like, but he doesn't favour music that kind of has a strong thematic base, which is often music that I'm drawn to. I mean, Little Wonder, I like in Stella so much. But, I mean, I'm not denying that David, the effectiveness of David Julian's music in The Prestige, and I suppose one could say that, well, if the music is subtly working on your emotions without you noticing it, then surely isn't that the hallmark of, of a great film score? You, you know, you're mm. being manipulated without knowing it. Yeah, I think that's that's true, and I feel like maybe that's part of the point of the way that, the prestige is scored and why it's it's more thought through in some sense because the whole point of the prestige is that it's making you look one way when something else is happening and maybe in a way the music's doing the same thing and I think maybe that's why it works on that level uh, but in a very different way so I, I really appreciate it. I went back and listened to it and I thought oh yeah this is this is good this is different and I, I really appreciated it on that basis since we're talking about David Julian, why don't you? Why don't we do Memento then, Sean? Why don't you talk a little bit about the the choice you've picked for that film and why you like it so much? Yeah, so I picked the opening track, uh, Polaroids, uh, which is accompanies the the fabulous opening scene of Memento, where you have the the Polaroid developing in reverse, which is just a, a brilliant like, opening credits sequence and sets out the stall of the of the of the movie which is you know one of nolan's finest achievements adapted from a short story by his brother jonathan who went on to develop the hbo series westworld the idea of two narratives one running uh, backwards in increments the other in black and white going forwards the idea it puts you in the mindset of guy pierce's central character who is suffering from short-term memory loss um, following uh, an assault in which uh, he says his wife has been killed. He says he's on the hunt for his wife's killer. Um, and one it, on, on, on first viewing, when you're just trying to keep up with the tricksy nature of this, one assumes that the black and white narrative going forward and the colour narrative going backwards in steps will meet in the middle. And that is what happens. Obviously, on the way, there are um, any number of incidental twists and turns which are quite brilliant i i I love this film because um, it's funny i went back and watched a few clips of it again recently and it's it's really lovely to just see a nolan film with no no visual effects in it you know there's no stuff i mean it's it's all the the special effect is the storytelling and i think that it's interesting i i i prefer david julian's score in this personally because i think that what the score has is don't doesn't it doesn't just have that sense of like low strings brooding catastrophe it also has got a real sense of melancholy and sadness to it which is entirely in keeping with the main character played by guy pierce who is basically a guy who has to keep you know rewriting his own identity rewriting his own crusade it's a very it's a very sad film it's it's a thriller but it but it's also very mournful and i think particularly when you get to the um end in inverted commas end of the film which is actually the midpoint of the film it's it's so brilliant the chronology of the film is fantastic so the film ends in the middle between these two narratives and in that 
particular scene you you have the steady build of david julian's score as guy pierce's character is attempting to to justify to himself you know he he always needs to find he always needs to rewrite his own crusade he always needs to reset the clock in order to give himself purpose because he can't think heads more than five minutes he can't retain a memory for more than five minutes it's necessary for him to live in this cycle of having to invent all these clues in order to give himself purpose and I think David Julian's score in in the end or middle of the film is is brilliantly well done and 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 it it, it does get that sense of tragedy I think there's also the the, the black and white scenes where Guy Pearce's character is talking to an, an unnamed character on the phone and then that fills in like various other little details. There's a weird little, I don't know what David Julian used, there's like a weird little scratchy sound, almost like a sampled sound in the background which gives you this kind of like twitchy air that, that something isn't quite right with it. And I think um, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a really, really fine, it's, it's a really, really fine score. I think that it's it's interesting that that Nolan stopped working with Julianne. Actually, I can only I can only imagine that maybe it was studio pressure that forced him not to use Julianne on on Batman Begins, or maybe the idea was because this is a big iconic comic book property. Maybe we need a big rock star composer like Hans Zimmer to to work on it, and then Zimmer was the one who then suggested that James Newton Howard came in because Zimmer wants to work with him. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting turn of events, I think. So. I've got a confession to make here. Mm. Memento is the only Nolan film I've not seen. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you're you're in for a treat if you watch that. Oh, I will, 100%. My, my wife said something similar, actually, when she went, what, you've not seen Memento? I was like, staggeringly, no. I don't know how it's happened, but I'm, I missed it completely in 2000 it, it- when it came out. In which case, I'm because I, I was I was flirting with spoilers there, and I'm really glad I didn't because because I I I, I, I I already feel in that case I already feel like I've probably given too much away. I did not know that. It's okay, fine. Well, in which case, don't I worry. Won't say I won't say anything else then. Um, it's okay. I don't I don't feel spoiled. Don't worry. I don't feel spoiled by what you've said. It's all good. I, I know bits and bobs anyway, so it's fine. Has don't what worry. I've said has has it hooked you in? Do you, oh do you yeah. Want to, yeah. Okay. It's it's yeah. pu- it was pure. It's purely based on you know everyone has has that blind spot, don't they? In certain parts of their filmography, and and you'll go, what you've not seen Jaws? That was one yeah. recently. I only corrected that about two months ago. Um, and I did, I did a podcast called Missing Frames with a great guy called Sean uh, Eastridge, who his whole podcast is based around films that you've not seen and you should have seen. And you go, you, you record with him, you start off recording with him, and then you go and watch the movie, and then you come back and you do your immediate initial impressions. It's a very good podcast. It's one I enjoyed doing, and I did that for Jaws. And there's there's lots of examples like that. So Memento is definitely one of mine. Definitely, it's yeah, it, it's something I will hundred percent do watch. Uh, and I hang my head in shame <laughs> for the fact that I've it's, never got around to it. It's a masterpiece, and the score works really well in it. The, the music is a real important component of that film, and I think it stands out because because it's an understated film, because there there isn't really anything loud about the film. It's a dialogue-driven film. The music is allowed in it to complement the action in a way that the music often struggles with Nolan's other movies, because in Nolan's as as Nolan's films have got bigger and more ambitious certainly they've got louder whereas in this i think david julian is allowed to kind of 
build that sense of impending tragedy and sadness right from the off and you don't have a lot of other sound effects distracting from it so yeah it's it's it's, it's a fantastic film brilliant so i'm gonna go back to the uh, the zimmer well i think for my next one and i'm going to choose from the dark knight why so serious why so serious serious uh, <laughs> which is the opening track from The Dark Knight. And this is the famous for the very slow string that creeps in from the very beginning. So that kind of thing that really very, very slowly comes into the soundtrack and then kicks everything off. Set to the opening scene, which is of the Joker and his crew breaking into the, the bank. And... I always think of I always think of when I hear this I always think of the tracking shot that Nolan does where he put he pushes in towards the back of the Joker as he's standing there with the mask in his hand amazing moment like a great moment and I think it, it just it's it's a great track because it sort of sets the tempo for the entire score for the dark knight which obviously you know and we're going to talk a little bit about Batman begins later but it, uh, that score for the dark knight really sort of I think in many ways establishes in some sense a template and a tempo that Zimmer carries through on with variations on all of the next films he does with Nolan I think really it sort of starts with the with the Dark Knight and Why So Serious is a great quite protracted track it's about seven or eight minutes set to this opening sequence that that draws you in from that from that low tense string that really loads you with a sense of dread into the, the Zimmer bombastics and I I love it for that I really do I, I think I think it's such a memorable track to open a movie with oh it's it's one of the best opening scenes of any movie ever I remember um when I watched The Dark Knight I was um I just just finished university and I was traveling around um America for um six weeks so we we alighted in this little town called um, called Jackson Hole, where randomly, apparently, Harrison Ford lives. So I didn't find that out until right. afterwards. I was like, oh, wow, I could have seen Harrison Ford wandering around, possibly. <laughs> and there really wasn't much to do there. There was, there was a cinema, and the cinema had... I walked past it, it just started to show The Dark Knight, and I walked in just as that opening scene started. And I don't think I've seen an audience more electrified by an opening scene. You could hear a pin drop that when the the push in towards the glass fronted building where the window blows out and then the client the, the robbers in the clown suits sus- suspend the grappling hook onto the other side and you've got that like you say that those low like buzzy strings and then you've got that and then as they fly out of the window you've got that that massive like eruption of percussion as they swing from one building to the other i just remember the audience being you could get a sense people were jolted to their seats and they were genuinely electrified by by the whole experience and that didn't let up throughout the whole film and I think that critical as I have been of the noise and volume of Zimmer's music in Nolan's films I think there are very very interesting things done in this I think you're right the 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 idea of the, the theme for the Joker I mean, it's not so much a theme so much as it is it's an impression of the Joker it sounds like a load of like buzzing hornets and it's appropriately creepy and deranged and the idea is that the joker doesn't really appear to have a a definitive backstory he's got a composite backstory that he alters and then and and adjusts depending on who he's talking to and therefore the music is kind of amorphous and never settles either and it's but what what does stay in the mind is the threat that the, the, the zimmer's music establishes 
Um, I have to be honest. I think that yeah, it's 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 a really it's a resting track to open the the, the film with. And again, it, it's interesting. Although it is a bank robbery scene in the opening, that scene is 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 driven by the music. You don't get a sense that the music is actually competing with anything. The music is actually driving that scene forward, which is probably why I like the track so much. It's not it's not having to contest with explosions or, or or anything like that and it's 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 brilliantly brilliantly well done i mean i, I was going to bring up the the influence of of, of james newton howard because i think james newton howard was a very very important mediating influence on the first two batman movies but i'll, I'll, I'll bring that up i'll bring that up in a minute <laughs> well yeah well i i thought we could segue nicely into you talking about because you've picked a track from the dark knight as well so it seems like a good place for you to maybe talk about the other aspects of because the track you've picked seemed, is, of a, I would say, of a different tempo. So which one have you gone for from The Dark Knight? Um, well, I mean, um, Watch the World Burn is, is the track. And this is by James Newton Howard. And this accompanies what I think is the most terrifying scene in the film. And it's not a scene that involves the Joker. What it, what, it's a scene that involves the consequences of what the Joker has done all the way through the film. So the idea is that this agent of chaos as he describes himself um like a dog chasing cars like that uh, it's, <laughs> it's a good impression just, that it's such a monumental performance from heath ledger it saddens me that we never got we never got to see what heath ledger could have done after this just to think of all the performances that he could have done this is it's one of the most extraordinary performances i've ever seen um but the the real scary thing is that the idea of the Joker is that he initiates madness in other people. Like he says, all it takes is a little push like that. And it's, it's really <laughs> like, I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop doing that. Don't it's stop. Just, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea that the, the divide between sanity and madness is such a thin one. And this is really explored by um, Christopher Nolan fantastically well in the film. And it all comes to a head when you have the corruption and, and the fall of the Harvey Dent Two-Face character, brilliantly played by Aaron Eckhart. Aaron Eckhart doesn't get any of the credit that he deserves for this film. I think he's really, really good in it. And it's, you know, what you've got is a, a, a character arc, somebody who goes from virtuous to evil within the course of one film. And I know some people said that, well, that kind of deserved its own movie. It's a bit rushed. I don't think it is. I think it sits alongside the rest of the story brilliantly well. And again, almost like Memento, you can see the tragedy coming. And what James Newton Howard does is James Newton Howard wrote the Harvey Dent material. Hans Zimmer wrote the Joker material. I believe there might have been some overlap on some other material. But broadly speaking, that's how I understand how composing the music went down. And the Harvey Dent theme is introduced with this kind of like rising hopeful tone in the initial scenes because the idea is that maybe Bruce Wayne played by Christian Bale wants to give up being Batman and he wants to hand the reins over to the white knight Harvey Dent the lawyer who might be able to clear the the scum off the streets of Gotham City and then the Joker turns up and completely disrupts everything but you've got the the Harvey Dent theme is introduced as being in terms of its tone and its harmonics being bright and hopeful and then steadily that warps through through the tone through the course of the movie as you see the influence that the joker has on harvey dent and then it all comes out in this um watch the world burn which is the final confrontation between dent batman and um gordon jim gordon played by gary oldman which has got the 
the corruption of the theme which is carried on the very very low cello and and double basses which builds this awful like churning sense of horror and despair which is not only really scary but also very sad because what you've seen is that a good person can turn bad and the music makes the point that the joker has been making all along which is you know don't don't think that you're invincible in terms of being corrupted or being broken psychologically and just the the churning menace and despair of the music I think just gets it brilliantly and I think as I said earlier I think particularly James Newton Howard didn't didn't contribute any music to the Dark Knight Rises which might be why I find Dark Knight Rises maybe the most insufferable of the three scores because it's just it's just Zimmer it's just Zimmer allowed to be noisy and um, I know I've, I've mentioned this before, but you have the <laughs> you have the um, the Sanskrit the Sanskrit chant from the Dark Knight Rises, which, as someone pointed out online, sounds like a, a group of people yelling "fishy pasta." Yeah. Is... <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 once once I read that, I thought, oh, that, that that's completely that, uh, that's completely wrecked for me now. And I think what the Dark Knight Rises needed was that in, that that balancing influence of James Newton Howard. James Newton Howard, who's got a real the penchant for understatement for melody i mean zimmer's got that as well but newton howard approaches it in maybe a bit more of an elegiac way um there's newton howard you know brilliant brilliant composer famous for his collaborations with um m night Shyamalan. i mean you think of the scores like the village um and unbreakable which great i i think that where if, if zimmer sort of goes hell for leather with the kind of the volume and the experimental tones newton howard's music feels organic it feels organic it feels orchestral and it grounds you in a kind of human emotion i think he is really important in in batman begins in the dark knight in terms of just arresting that sense of overwhelming volume just enough and then when he left in the dark knight rises i think it's no coincidence that i found Dark Knight Rises like in just an, an ear batteringly loud <laughs> movie in terms of its music. Right. Well, this is where I rise up. <laughs> <laughs> so you come to save your city. <laughs> all, all the impressions are coming out. <laughs> it has to be done, Sean. It has to be done. Maybe you should you should present what piece of music you have. Here. <laughs> I, so you're lucky I didn't do the entire podcast as Bane. I, I, yeah, yeah. I'm still doing impressions of Bane eight years later. My my favourite was how I've got to tell this little story. I I work I work in schools, and some years ago I worked in a school where I I, I took a bunch. Me and a few other teachers took a bunch of students to Disneyland in um in Paris, and we were staying over the night and everything, and it was great fun. And a lot of the kids were kept coming out of their rooms and going into each other's rooms and all this kind of thing, which you can't have, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you're patrolling <laughs> the corridors and all this kind of thing. So I decided that I'm going to pretend to be Bane and I'm going to walk <laughs> down the corridors. So if, if there were kids running out of each other's rooms, I'd bang on the door and I'd go, now you must go to sleep. <laughs> or you will be in trouble. Like this. And Sean, they, did, they didn't say a word. They, there was no, they didn't come out again. It worked. They were like, what the hell is that? Or they thought, actually, Tom Hardy is outside and he's going to beat them up. I don't know. But um, but this is where I defend The Dark Knight Rises because my pick, my next pick is Gotham's Reckoning, which is the 
the, you, you get you get the opening moment where you see Gary Oldman talking about Harvey Dent, and you get the, a storm is coming, which is the sort of opening low key sort of moment, and then the Gotham's Reckoning is the first big piece of music that Zimmer gives you for the Dark Knight Rises, and it is the fishy pasta, definitely. You know, where <laughs> <laughs> it comes in, but I mean, I, I still get tingles when i think of that opening sequence this is the sequence that introduces bane and it's that brilliant shot sequence in the sky where he's basically bond james bond villain style plucked out of, a, of an airplane which then he's dismantled in there in the middle of the air basically and it's it's a fantastic sequence i love that and the the, the gotham's reckoning is just this in a different way to the dark knight where the dark knight got into as you say got into that sort of gritty sense of tragedy you know and that that earthy level of you know inner city sort of doom i think whereas the dark knight rises is much more it's operatic in a different way to interstellar interstellar is is about the majesty of like the the story going on in space whereas for me zimmer does a really good job of capturing that cult madness that you get in bane you know bane is an extremist he's a revolutionary he is he is part of the league of shadows occult and the fishy pasta stuff to me is that we've got to call it the fishy pasta stuff. That it, it is, it is a bit ridiculous in one sense, but in the other, I really do get the. It really gives me a tingle down the spine. You know, when I feel it's a fantastic way of introducing a villain who is ultimately one of the. I think Bane is one of the best villains in any comic book film and potentially cinema uh, of the last certainly of the last ten years. I think he's amazing in that film. And he is genuinely one of the biggest threats that that Batman or any other comic book villain has faced. I, I don't I don't think any anyone came close to being as good a villain as Bane until we got to Thanos in, in Infinity War at least. Anyway, not Endgame because he's not as good in Endgame, but in Infinity War, Thanos is brilliant all the way through. Anyway, so I just think it, it's a great way of introducing Bane, and and I do like the rest of the score. To be fair, I really like tracks like Imagine the Fire and Rise at the end. Even if it is basically the end of that film is basically we got to get rid of a bomb, you know, from the nineteen sixties. Exactly, it is exactly that. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) some days you can't get rid of a bomb, bomb. you know, but some but some days you've got two hundred million dollar budget to do it. It's literally like that. It's it's. I mean, I I hate. I mean, Christopher Nolan is one of my favorite filmmakers, and I remember going to see The Dark Knight Rises with a group of people, and, and I think that. Three, every, everyone bar me came out of it going, wow, wasn't that amazing? And I felt like the, I felt like the party pooper. I was like, really? I was like, I, I felt really let down by it. I felt really let down by, again, this word, the air of cheesiness to it. The air of, I, I, I understand that, like you say, the word operatic is exactly right. It has to reach this kind of like shrieking crescendo of incident. Like everything has to be happening. Like everything has to be cross-cutting between all different like storylines, you know, flashbacks on flashbacks, everything. I mean, that's not that's not unusual in Christopher Nolan's world, but the idea that everything is building this kind of um, hysterically overblown pitch, and you're just being carried along with it, and it's like, hang on, how did Batman get back from the underground prison to Gotham? If Gotham <laughs> is locked down, and where did he get the the, the bat plane from? It's yeah. like, you know, whatever. Um, and then all in the background, you've got this febrile. Um, hands in a score. I think you're absolutely right when you say. I mean, that must have been the intention, the idea that you you use voices to simulate the idea of an uprising. Yeah, absolutely. I just think that in 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 
in, in in principle, that's a really interesting idea. I mean, lots of scores have done that. You think of um, Michael Abel's score for Us recently, which was, a, I thought, a fabulous score for a fabulous film. And the idea was, I, I interviewed Michael Abel's and he said the idea of using voices in that was it was meant to signify people on the march. In the case of that film, the tethered, the underground are, are on the march. That's how it's mirrored through the theme. Whereas I think the problem in this, in The Dark Knight Rises, is that it adds so much to an already overcooked stew everything is already cranked up enough and um i mean it it really doesn't help either when you've got a, a noisy film with a noisy score and a lot of characters wearing masks and facial appliances and it's kind of you're, you're trying to pick out what tom hardy is i mean tom hardy is a very brilliant actor very physically imposing but um you know, it's in, in that opening scene in, in the plane at the beginning. So not only have you got the roar of the plane, you've got the roar of the of the choir on top of it, and then you've got Tom Hardy in the middle going, "It will be extremely painful for you." <laughs> for and you. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, for you. And it's like, what? It's like, what are you saying? And I just think that the the, the you know, in I think in this instance for me, Zimmer doesn't help the doesn't help the equation particularly well. Um, I'm not the only person to say this. I think there were there were several other reviews that, that, that said it at, at the at the time of the of the film's um, release. But I will say that, I mean, flawed as a film as I think it is, I think that yeah, it, it it does it does the thing that the fans wanted, which is it rounds off the Dark Knight trilogy with everything. I mean, it literally throws everything at the walls, <laughs> which I suppose yeah. is the right way to go with it. Well, I mean, it, uh, there, there was that whole i think it was along with what year was this 2012 so i think it was tagged onto either the avengers or another big movie in the summer it might not have been avengers actually it might have been another big movie in the summer where we had the, the that opening bane sequence tagged on at the end or at the beginning to as a preview to the dark knight rises and i remember at the time the sound design was even worse back then because nobody could understand a word that Tom Hardy said and they had to yeah, go away it, and redub it. And redub it, yeah, because it was... <laughs> right. It literally was like that. It was. Yeah, it really was. And I remember thinking, wow, I love this sequence, but I haven't got a clue what he's on about. You know, so I think it, there there is an issue there. I mean, I, I do... I do lo- it is, that is... I will happily admit it is my favourite Christopher Nolan film. Is it his best? Probably not. Te- on a technical basis, although I do think it is a fantastic film and I do think it's underrated, but it is my favourite. It is the one I've watched the most and I just I, I, it puts a big smile on my face every time I watch that film. But I completely understand the criticisms. Although maybe he's ahead of the curve with you know everyone wearing masks in films. You know, because I think that's kind of where we're going. I can't wait for the Gerard Butler, Jennifer Aniston romantic comedy where they're both wearing masks, you know. <laughs> where the, where what, they, they, they can't hook up with each other and it's not good. So they may, may, maybe they'll just keep their distance and go and find other people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and the title is called Keeping Your Distance. I tell nice. you, we, we, nice. we could write it right now, Sean. I tell oh, you, we should. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, don't give them ideas because they, they will do it. They, 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 will, they will do that. Oh. <laughs> it will that will happen 100 yeah. there'll be so many crap films set in this <laughs> pandemic but why don't, why don't we round off talking about uh the batman saga then you've we've got you've got one more haven't you we're going sort of back to the back to the beginning actually yeah and <clears throat> um, back to james newton howard from batman begins so as i said the idea was that um hans zimmer was brought on 
to uh, Batman Begins and he then brought on James Newton Howard because he was a fan of James Newton Howard and wanted to collaborate with him and as with The Dark Knight broadly speaking Hans Zimmer tackled the action sequences James Newton Howard tackled the more emotional sequences particularly the scenes involving Bruce Wayne's identity where you get the flashbacks to him as a young boy falling into the Batcave seeing the bats for the first time and that kind of sense of the, the the embryonic sense of of the Batman identity being formed when Bruce was a young boy. You have a lovely the, tr- the track that I've chosen is called Etescus, which is um, apparently all the tracks on the album are named after species of bats, and uh, which is an interesting. There's there's the the Hans Zimmer track uh, action track called Molossus, which I actually really like that track. That's the bat pod chase sequence. That's another species of bat Molossus, but I've chosen. Um, at Testicus and I just think it's it's a lovely it's a it's a beautiful piece of music atypically tender for a Christopher Nolan film there is lots of emphasis on um, I think clarinet and strings and piano and it's got a lovely gentle sense to it and that James Newton Howard is very very good at this you think of scores like Restoration or Snow Falling on Cedars or White Earp or his scores for um, M. Night Shyamalan you think of things like The Village and I think that this kind of nuance is, I hate to sound like a stuck record, this kind of nuance is what was needed in The Dark Knight Rises. It's this, it's quite a jolt actually going back and listening to James Newton Howard's contributions from Batman Begins again. You think, wow, it's it, it, they sound so far removed from what Hans Zimmer is doing that it really does provide, it's like a palate cleanser. You know, you get the big noisy action sequences, but then you get the tracks like this, which are very gentle and... Yeah, it's 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 lovely. I think it gets the the, the tragedy of, of Bruce, the fact that he loses his parents at a young age, and he's almost rudderless. Were, were it not for Alfred, played by Michael Caine, uh, Michael Caine, Michael um, Caine, you did say it a bit like that, then uh, Michael, Michael Caine, Caine. And, 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 and all, all the way through the trilogy. Michael Caine is very, very, very emotional. Um, it's just, it's just, I do uh, yeah. feel like I, I feel like this podcast is basically going to become the trip. With, with, with. <laughs> yeah. isn't it yeah i mean i didn't realize how many impressions could be mined out of the christopher <laughs> nolan like batman movies actually i've, I've learned something there there's what, Wait, about it, six already the, the the key one is the michael kane the sad michael kane oh yeah. master bruce i, I failed, failed you. you i failed I've, you i failed you master bruce <laughs> that's <laughs> That's my favourite. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Yeah, um, yeah it's, and I think that it's um, James Newton has contribution to uh, the first two Christopher Nolan Batman movies is very important, and I think it's a shame that he gets overlooked because when people talk about the music from that trilogy, they only tend to zero in on Hans Zimmer. It's like, no, James Newton Howard is responsible for at least 50% of the impact in terms of the score on both Batman Begins and The Dark Knight. In fact, I would say James Newton Howard is probably responsible for pretty much all of the emotional impact. I mean, if if Hans Zimmer gets the action scenes, James Newton Howard gets the scenes that make you feel, that make you think and feel about about what's about what's going on. Yeah, and I I think in in some ways it's, it's it could be the a score that sort of gets does does get in a way overlooked, I suppose, by particularly the Dark Knight Rises. I mean, and I kind of feel like Batman Begins itself gets a bit overlooked now by by the sheer weight of those two final, you know, successive films, and it's great. You know, it it is as good, I think, in many ways as both as both of those. 
you know, and I think I think there is a lot to be said for the score. The score does things in the in Batman Begins that it doesn't do in the next two. In many ways, that's great in that they 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 change the tempo for what is what are two very different films in some ways. But yeah, I love it. I think Batman Begins is a beautiful score. I've listened to it many times, and I didn't know that about the bats. I thought they were. I thought it was all Latin. I thought it was all just Latin words that meant different things. That's really interesting to know about the bats. Yeah, yeah, L- Latin names um, for, for for a different genus of bats. Um, yeah, I didn't know it was bats. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. But yeah, I, I'm going to pick for uh, my next one. I'm going to go uh, back to the solo Zimmerwell and uh, talk about Inception and the track Mombasa, which I think is a great piece of chase music in the middle of a film which has again has a lot of stylistic sort of bombast to it i mean inception is famous i mean it's a it's a great movie but it's famous for the kind of you know effects that people have lampooned a lot in that there's a lot of very loud percussion on there and i but i i I really like mombasa i mean it's set to dicaprio on the run in mombasa basically but it's it's short and sweet really but it it blasts away, and I, I, I really, I really think it's, it's got an amazing tempo to it. It's got, and I don't know the instrumentation that he that he uses on this. You might know this, Sean, but he, he really imbues it with a sense of a particular sense of African sensibility in terms of in terms of the the, the, the instrumentation he uses that really grounds you in that sense of place, while at the same time propulses the narrative along. It's maybe a bit different to a lot of what else is on that soundtrack, actually, but. I really get a thrill out of Mombasa whenever I hear it. And I generally like the Inception score overall. Yeah, I, I actually, this is one of the tracks I really like in Inception. I think Inception is a bit of a mixed bag of a score. It's got some of Hans Zimmer's finest work. I think, again, it's got a lot of a lot of score in it that's kind of anonymous and frustratingly, I think, fails to add more to the score, to, to the story. But I think this track is brilliant. And in terms of the instrumentation, the, the thing is with Zimmer, so much of it is is processed and tweaked and bulked out this is what Zimmer does you know he, he takes the core of an idea and he he kind of you know industrializes it you know be, beefs it up although I would say in, in the case of Inception and in where you know Inception dealing with the idea of mind espionage the idea of you know is is it real is it a dream is it organic is it fake I suppose the tone of Zimmer's score is kind of is, is appropriate for this I mean, in terms of the Mombasa track, which I think is brilliant. I mean, it's a, it's a great it's a great piece for like you know going swimming or going running. I mean, again, you mentioned like propulsion there. It's 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 awesome. I think. Well, the, the, I suppose the first thing to say is you've got the guitar from uh, Johnny Marr from the Smiths, which is probably the most important element of it. And um, obviously, you've got the ostinato strings, the, the the propulsive ostinato strings, which are very is another hallmark of, of Zimmer lots of the the brass the brass section has been kind of distorted and warped to to sound not not to 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 not sound like an organic brass section which again that that's an element of zimmer's music that always generally tends to create controversy yeah you mentioned them (laughs) which has become a real cliche and not necessarily in a good way i i have to be honest and i think that there are definitely frequent occasions in inception where which i think is a, is a tremendous film don't get me wrong the film is brilliant but i think in terms of the music there are chris nolan does that usual thing of indulging zimmer a bit too much of indulging zimmer's capacity for 
volume and noise rather than nuance. And I know I, I don't want to come across as being unduly negative towards Zimmer because Hans Zimmer is one of my favourite composers. But I think the, the, the Hans Zimmer that I like is in a very, very particular kind of register. Again, you think of things like uh, the Thin Red Line. I mean, there's a lot of the Thin Red Line in the score for Inception, a lot of that, which I think that might be Zimmer's best score, actually, the Thin Red Line. Or you think of things like The Lion King. I've mentioned Beyond Rangoon. Um, Thelma and Louise, which has got a, another love, lovely, lovely use of electric guitar in it. I mean, I've I've got a track from from Inception coming up that I won't ruin yet, but I think that there are there are highlights in the Inception score. Uh, I think that, again, the, the the story is so complicated. Although it, although it is laid out fairly, I mean, the movie doesn't cheat you. The the score the story is complicated, but not impossible to follow. And I think sometimes with you know, characters invading different levels of consciousness and having to constantly explain, right, whose consciousness are we going into now? And you're you're trying to keep up with that, and then you you've got you've got Zimmer's music being kind of rammed down your throat a little bit, and it's kind of like right, okay, just 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 back off, just back off with the music a little bit, because I really need to pay attention to what's going on here. But yeah, Mon, Mon, I can't fault the choice of Mombasa. It's 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 a brilliant piece of music. Like, well, you went for a a, a different one with Inception, didn't you? You went for I think what is the last track on the album, and it's a pretty memorable one. It's time, yeah, which I think is, I think it's kind of appropriate at the moment. With everything going on, people are speculating on on the nature of time uh, and and the nature of existence. And I think this, I mean, again, bearing in mind that I've just expressed reservations with with Inception score as a whole, there are magnificent highlights within it. And I think time is one of them. I think this is probably, again, like I, like I said with the docking sequence from Interstellar to bring it full circle, this is one of the scenes in a Christopher Nolan movie where unusually he allows to, he allows the music on its own to drive the scene forward. There's very little else in terms of the sound design or in terms of the visual effects to distract you from what's going on. The music is is the propulsive element in this and it's it's brilliantly well done. It's, it's fabulous. I mean, it, it does owe a lot to the thin red line the the score for the terence mallet movie which again as i said i think is is zimmer's crowning achievement but the the burgeoning that you start off with the piano the, the tentative strains of the piano is at, at the end i mean obviously um like this might be a bit of a silly question obviously you hadn't seen memento you have seen inception right i'm not going to spoil it mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> um, but you start off with the low strains of the piano as they all wake up on the plane at the end having succeeded in their mission which is to plant that seed of doubt in the killian in the mind of the killian murphy character which will help which will you know assist in him dismantling his business empire which is the whole point Leonardo DiCaprio's character Cobb has done that in order to get some kind of immunity that will allow him to get back to America to see his children and it's brilliant because they wake up on the plane and everything has been accomplished but nothing has been accomplished on the surface they've just been sat there on this plane and they've insidiously planted the seed of doubt in the passenger sat next to them without him even realizing it and you get that kind of uncertainty in the music at the beginning it's like okay did we succeed is this a dream is this not a dream and then you build through the strings and the brass sections this kind of ecstatic finale which kind of plays into the notion of you know is it is it a dream or is it real or you know do you take 
you know, do you take comfort in the fact that it is a dream? If this is a dream and it's a happy dream, what's what's wrong with that? You know, there is, a, there, you know, regardless whether it's a dream or whether it's real, there is a kind of triumph in watching Leonardo DiCaprio's character returning to his kids. So it's kind, there's kind of an irony in the music in terms of like, right, well, if this is a dream, it, it's a happy dream. It's a, it's a victorious one. But then you get that slight sense of uncertainty back with the piano at the very end of the track when you see the spinning top, the totem, just starting to wobble or, or not, which obviously signifies whether something is real or isn't. I think it's, it's, a, it's a brilliantly scored sequence. Would that Nolan allowed for that more often? Because I think, I think it's a really fabulous sequence. And it leaves so much... The music helps leave so much open, doesn't it? It it leaves you on that beat of ambiguity that's quite brilliant. And as still debated today, you know, as to whether or not he's still in there or what's going on. So yeah, it's it's a it's a great it's a great way to end what is a really memorable album, definitely. Um, so the, yeah, I think if if I hadn't have chosen Mombasa, I would have gone for Time as well, actually, because in terms of being a standout piece, definitely. So I've got one more, one final one. Uh, before we call it a day and we've picked out 10 we've picked through a lot of his films and I've gone for Supermarine from Dunkirk and Dunkirk obviously Dunkirk's his most recent one before we get Tenet and we it will be and I'm guessing that Nolan will go back to working with Hans Zimmer eventually but I think this this up until now will be the last collaboration and and Dunkirk I think didn't get a lot of plaudits for the score in many ways. I think it was a, a very well-received film, and I think Dunkirk's fantastic. It's not my favourite Nolan film, but I think it was brilliantly done. And Supermarine is... And I've only seen Dunkirk twice, so I might be misremembering, but Supermarine, I think, is set to a particularly tense sequence. You might be correct. You might correct me on this, Sean, or somebody else might, but he's set to a particularly tense sequence with Tom Hardy in his plane. I think, um, which which is, I think it's that he's running out of fuel, potentially. Now, I, I seem to remember that sequence, and it is just, it's like a ticking clock. The whole eight-minute track, or whatever it is, is like a, is like a, a ramping up ticking clock. And it, it similar, actually, with another track I almost chose, which was scored by Benjamin Wolfish, who helped out on the production of Dunkirk, called Home, which, again, has this really strong, and, and I know Wolfish is a divisive composer to some extent because sometimes he does things that people really love and sometimes he doesn't but I loved particularly the the sense of tension in tracks like Home and particularly Supermarine which make you feel like you are in the middle of this of this ticking clock scenario where there isn't much time left and everything is building to a a conclusion that is is not guaranteed, I guess. Even though you know the story of Dunkirk, I don't know. I just feel this album, it, it it's it's diff- certainly different to Interstellar. It's different to the, the the Batman movies, but it really does soak you in that sense of tension and dread that maybe Dunkirk that maybe befits a film like Dunkirk. I mean, do, do what do you think of this score, Sean? Yeah, I think bearing in mind that there seems to be um, a pattern in what I'm saying about Zimmer's music throughout this podcast, which is very often I think that there is a um, that that in Nolan's films there can often be a bit of a battle between the sound design and the music. I mean, in in an, in an ideal world, those two things will will mesh very very well to create a kind of tapestry of overall sound that will inform you about the narrative and will will inform you about the characters and so on. And I think that. 
sometimes in Nolan's movies, it's it's a bit too overwhelming for its own good. I think in Dunkirk, it works. I think the music, the sound design on its own is extraordinary. The the sound of the, of the Stuka bombers is, is one of the most terrifying things. The sound, of, I, I haven't jumped as hard in any film as I did during the IMAX preview of Dunkirk when that first gunshot goes off from from the unseen Germans. So the sound design on its own is brilliant, but the, the music forgoes, for the most part, forgoes melody and harmony and it adopts like you said the ticking clock um mechanism which was also heard to some extent in interstellar when they're on the wave planet but also the idea of the shepherd tone you've got music that doesn't really sound like music music that glides between different pitches in a kind of monstrous brooding brutal manner and i think in dunkirk although the music when separated from the film and listened to on its own terms is quite insufferable. This isn't really a score that's meant to be listened to outside of the context of the film. There are scores like that in the film. I think it works brilliantly. And I think what you get is a meshing of, you know, sound design and music as sound, and it all comes together to it. And and I think the dramatic purpose is served. I mean, the Dunkirk is basically a horror film. It's, it's about the horror of war. And I'd say in the film, at least, Probably 60 percent, 60-70% of that is driven by the sound. It, it, it is the sound, and, it, and it's the way that Zimmer's music is caught within that sound design, and you are dramatically forced to unpick the, uh, the you're forced to unpick those remnants of humanity from what is an appalling battlefield situation, evacuation situation. And I think it's it's really well done. The use of the ticking clock and, and and the shepherd tone is 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 very 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 effective. And I think yeah, I'm glad you picked out Wolfish's contributions as well because he was he was the one responsible for adapting the Elgar piece, the Nimrods, uh, the famous Nimrods um, piece, uh, which obviously has many many associations with World War Two. And that that's the melodic side of the score that. Um, and and, it, and it, it's treated to it, it, it's been like distorted and extended and and messed with to some extent. But the the beauty of that when the small ships first turn up, and also during the scene when Tom Hardy beaches and is captured by the Germans, I think there is, that that is a very important element in bringing that kind of organic humanity to a film which emphasizes the mechanical horror of war through its sound design and through through you know Zimmer's music. Yeah, I think that I think Dunkirk's fabulous. I think it's it's I mean I saw it as I say I saw it in IMAX and the it, it really was an overwhelming, really terrifying experience. I mean it's more it's more terrifying than most horror films as it's meant to be because this is dealing with a scenario that really happened, the idea of Operation Dynamo, the idea that in war it, 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 you don't know when you're going to be plucked from a, a moment of relative solitude into a moment of absolute, you know, screaming, overwhelming terror. And I think all aspects of the sound design and the music do that brilliantly in Dunkirk. And I, I think that contrasting that, you have the ben, Benjamin Wolfish adaptation of, of Elgar, which, you know, brings everything down to earth and does remind you that, you know, the people involved in this there were people involved in this conflict there is a human cost which yeah i i i think i think this film fires on all cylinders really yeah well i'm glad i'm glad about that because I, I yeah i think um dunkirk is is a great i'm looking forward to revisiting it actually because i think it is a great a great film and i i yeah i think the score does work really well with it that's our 10 then so i'm wondering just before we wrap up what what do you, what do you think we'll get from Ludwig Göransson with Tenet then? I mean, 
he's obviously really struck out and won the Oscar for Black Panther, which we've talked about how brilliant that score is, and it is an absolutely marvellous score. He's also done great work on films like Creed, and I enjoyed, I quite enjoyed the score to Creed 2 as well. And he's, he's also done great work on TV recently with The Mandalorian, which is a lot of fun. The music on that is a brilliant sort of take on the Western genre. Uh, so I'm excited for what he might bring to what looks like a real sort of spy-fi, time travely you know, super thriller. What do you what do you expect to see from this? Well, I can tell you what I don't want is I don't want to hear more of the same. I I don't want to hear Ludwig Göransson being compelled to do a Hans Zimmer impression. That that's 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 what I don't want. And I think as I'm as I mentioned earlier, Nolan favours broad stroke tonalities. I think Nolan very often you you think Nolan doesn't often favor music that is necessarily specifically tailored to the particular texture of a scene. What 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 he'll have is he'll have there'll be like a wash of sound that will be applied over the whole movie. Think of something like Inception which has got that wah, you know, that very yeah, pro- yeah. process, overwhelming sound. And what I would like is, I what I would like is more of a scene-specific score that is driven by, you know, a, a, an identity, a motif, a theme, or several of them. And I know that Nolan often hasn't favoured that, with the exception of Interstellar. Nolan hasn't often favoured that maybe as much as I would like. But, I mean, bearing in mind that Ludwig Göransson is a brilliant experimental composer. Yeah, the Creed scores are brilliant. I, I thought the Black Panther score was fabulous, and I think it's very, very interesting the way that um, East and West were melded in that score. And I think that his work with Childish Gambino as well, I think Ludwig Göransson has done a lot of very, very interesting sound design work with Childish Gambino. I think all of that would ordinarily be catnip to a to a director i i think in this instance it's more dependent on what nolan wants because nolan has established such a, a kind of defining sound with his movies which for me personally is a bit of a mixed bag i you know i hope that in this instance maybe the template can be freshened up a little bit and that what you will get are elements of the cultural specificity like you've got in Black Panther, the use of different kinds of percussion, maybe the use of different kinds of vocals, perhaps if the, if the Tenet story allows for it. I mean, we should say we don't know anything about Tenet at the moment, at the time of recording, other than the fact that it deals in time inversion, which, what, what the hell's that? What does that mean? <laughs> it's gonna, um, so who knows, really, what I would, I would personally want a more of a thematically driven score that that deploys an orchestra maybe vocals maybe percussion maybe some interesting like sound samples to because clearly there's a lot going on that those who've seen the trailer know there's a lot going on in the film even though we don't know a lot about it there are a lot of different locations so there's potential for you know getting the nuances of different locations like it takes place in europe it takes it was filmed in europe it was filmed in india there's lots of potential like that but i don't know whether Nolan himself would be interested in favouring that kind of approach based on the way that he's used music before. Let's wait and see. I'm 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 broadly hopeful because I really like Ludwig Göransson's work. I think mm. he's a terrific composer. Yeah, it feels like he's rising up in the ranks. Definitely, you know, he's becoming one of the. He's starting to feel like he has a definable sound to him in a way that 
someone like Giacchino did. So yeah, I'm I'm excited. We'll we'll soon find out potentially as we've talked about with Tenet because whether or not, uh, even though like I may not go and see the movie, I definitely will listen to the score 100. percent So I'm excited and yeah, we'll we'll try and come back and and look at it, Sean, on this podcast at some point, hopefully, um, and and see what we thought of Jorensen's final output. But um, I think we've pretty much I think we've covered the Nolan stuff pretty well here. I think we've we've gone through and we've talked in good depth about you know various of these scores so they will be on a spotify playlist as i say so if you haven't checked that out already it will be on our show notes so um uh, my recommendation is you go off and listen to that and then explore the albums if you haven't already you know go and listen to all the albums in depth because there's some amazing stuff in all of that so um i hope you you enjoy listening to to that stuff and you've you've put together a couple of other things on spotify haven't you sean while we've been in lockdown over the last couple of months yeah i put i put together a few lockdown playlists because i figured that in this situation people need to be calmed down there's a lot of um strain on mental health at the moment and physical health as well and i think that film music um or particular strands of film music are very very good they're almost like a balm for the soul in in a way and i i did i i've put a, i've put a few out there i need i need to actually um make a couple of new ones actually because there is you know there is such a rich plethora of music that can calm people down and that can inspire people in lockdown you know that basically the music that reminds you you know hopefully it's all going to be all right in the end because mm. <laughs> mm. i think everyone yeah. wants that at the moment yeah a bit of hope is no bad thing definitely so more of them would be would be really welcome they're really good and again they're in the show notes so uh i've linked we've linked to those playlists so go off and explore them guys it's not necessarily christopher nolan films but it's uh <laughs> it's a lot of really great stuff um, that yeah will be very soothing I think especially if you are still locked down and you're not going back into the uh, the viral rat race but yeah we'll be back soon then this is going to be the first of a new series and we don't the the, the beauty is we don't have a clue what we're going to talk about next week so you know in the next couple of weeks <laughs> exciting, so it'll yeah. be it'll be exciting to see uh, see where we go with it so until then uh, Sean why don't you just uh, point people towards where they can find you for a bit more um, Sean action Yes, yeah, so um, if you go on um, cineworld.co.uk forward slash blog, uh, you can find uh, my, my latest um, articles for Cineworld on there, including plenty of stuff on Christopher Nolan. Excellent stuff. Great stuff. Okay, and you can find me at AJ Black Writer on Twitter, uh, and you'll find my blog links and everything over there. And make sure you check out the We Made This Podcast Network, which we're part of, at We Made This Pod on Twitter, and uh we made this pod.com and we'll give you a little bit of sneak peek as to what else is on the network that you might want to listen to just at the end of this. So, uh, yeah, it's been great, Sean. It's been great to be back on the film music train with you. Likewise. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's been it's, great. It's great. So we'll be back very soon guys in a couple of weeks for some more film music chat. So, uh, until then stay safe and we hope you enjoy listening to us talk about all the music between the notes. Previously on the We Made This Network. The Movie Palace. Are you a gangster fan generally, Andy, before we come on to the public enemy specifically? You like you like this kind of film? I do. Uh, initially, I watched a lot of gangster films just to see like some of the origins of film noir. And I've seen, I've noticed some of that, but it's, you know, the gangster film is fascinating in its own right, but um, it really is its own thing. And, yeah. you know, you can, you can say it's still going on. And, and like you said, Bonnie and Clyde is kind of outside the, uh, 
you know, purview of your podcast. But, you know, it's clearly it's still going on. There are still gangster movies being made. Don't say the C word. Yeah, and I think the game you're the kind of games you're talking about, the one that would epitomize that is Cards Against Humanity. Yeah, I've got Cards Against Humanity there with most of the expansions because, again, it's while it's not my absolute favourite game, I enjoy playing it with the right group of people. Yeah. But it's always a popular one. If I'm, if I'm going anywhere, that's, that's the one I'll always get people saying, oh, can you bring Cards Against Humanity with you? Me too. And I think Cards Against Humanity is something almost of a almost a gateway. People see that there are games that aren't aimed at families that are aimed at adults, that are a bit more maybe sophisticated or a bit more more novelty than you, you would with the kids' stuff. Make it so. It's, it's like this mid-season point where it's like, okay, things are going to be different from here on out. Mm. And yeah. I love yeah. what they did with Michael and Ash. I thought, would you just get together already? For heaven's sake, <laughs> this is not a soap opera. <laughs> But they did, you know, they did that though. Looking back, they did it far quicker than I remember. I, I mm-hmm. in my head, it was more towards the end of the season that they start getting together. No, but no. it didn't happen that way. <laughs> Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This podcast network. Between the Notes is produced and edited by Tony Black, who hosts alongside Sean Wilson. You can find Tony on Twitter at AJBlackWriter and Sean on Twitter at SeanO22. You can find Between the Notes on Twitter at BTW underscore notes, on iTunes, your podcast app of choice, on Spotify, Stitcher and on Spreaker, where the show is part of the We Made This Podcast Network. For more podcasts all about TV, film, books, music and popular culture in general, you can find We Made This on Facebook and on Twitter at We Made This Pod. Thanks for listening.